Well, again, a warm welcome to you on this first Sunday of Advent, and we especially welcome our guests who are with us today, and it's just such a joy to um, be a part of joining in this journey of Advent together. It feels like we haven't been together in Advent for two years. That's true. Amen, right? So it's just wonderful to be in the same room and to be able to start this journey. I want to say a little bit about Advent. Today will be more instructional as we learn a little bit about our faith tradition and what this season means for us. Advent is, comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming. And frankly, Advent is basically a season in preparing for the coming of Jesus. It means the coming of Jesus in two ways, right? It means the coming of Jesus as a baby, and we tend to focus there. We sing carols about a way in a manger and silent night and, and uh, you know, low how rose air blooming and all the things around Mary, these beautiful stories. And that's so important because Advent every year, this first season in the church year, prepares us for the coming of Jesus. You remember that though our year in the secular world starts January 1st, in the church year, starts the first Sunday of Advent. We begin to walk through seasons of the church that show the life of Jesus. So now we're preparing. On Christmas, we'll celebrate his birth. In Epiphany, the coming of the wise men. Then we'll come to Lent and the journey of his ministry and his suffering through Holy Week and Easter. Then Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then the summer, again, this whole journey of Jesus' teachings, only to return again to the first Sunday of Advent to begin the story again. Here we are in the season of Advent. Advent uh, lasts four Sundays. And though it does focus on the coming of Jesus as a child, it also has readings that prepare us for the coming of Jesus and his second coming and the coming of his kingdom. Amen? So there are two ways that Jesus arrives. Once as a baby and again as a victorious king and Messiah. Amen? And we'll focus on that today in our, le our learning. So over these four Sundays, we'll light these four candles. I didn't grow up with the Advent wreath, but many of you did. The Advent wreath is a symbol that helps us walk through these four Sundays of Advent. Uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent, often called Hope. The second Sunday is often called Peace. The banners are helpful to you if you need a reference, right? And so are these, right? I need them occasionally. Amen, right? Uh, on the third Sunday of Advent, we light the pink candle for, because it is the candle of, oh, you're so good, right? And joy, because it's much brighter and joyful, lightens the candle to pink. If you're from France, it's called Gaudette Sunday. It's a major celebration in France. And then the fourth one is the candle of love, and it is the fourth Sunday of Advent as we prepare for the coming of Jesus as a child, as well as coming in his second coming. Then in the middle is the Christ candle. And normally, any other time, the Christ candle is here by the baptismal font as a sign of Jesus' life and claim on our lives. But during the Advent season, the Christ candle waits, right? And on Christmas Eve, we light this candle as a sign that Christ has indeed come. And so uh, many of us have Advent wreaths in our homes. And this morning, I lit the first candle as I did my devotions, praying that I blew it out before I left, right? Uh, but, um, but it's a wonderful way for families to continue this beautiful journey of Advent. The colors of Advent are mostly purple, as you can see. And the purple is a sign of royalty. Often kings and queens wear 
Purple, good, I think you're awake. Here we go, a little too much turkey. Uh, purple, and so purple is sometimes a color, but another color of Advent is blue, because blue is the color associated with the Virgin Mary, uh, uh, the, and we often will see blue as a part of that experience as well. In fact, in some churches, the candles are not purple, but they are blue, right? So here we are in this season of Advent, and we're in the season of preparing, and over the next weeks, some new symbols will appear as we journey closer to Bethlehem and the coming of Jesus. Next week, we'll have two trees in the room, and they'll have uh, symbols on them called chrismons, which means the monograms of Christ, just symbols of Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Then the poinsettias, which are a sign of Christ's sacrifice and joy. And then you'll see the nativity set that'll come out. All of those are symbols for us to point us to the coming of Jesus. And in the midst of this study... We are doing a study on Adam Hamilton's book, Incarnation. Many of you have signed up for that. Um, but, but I want to talk about incarnation. Now, how many of you use incarnation in your daily talking? Anybody? No, not really. It's not a word we use very much. In fact, in the church, we probably focus more on resurrection, as I said earlier, than we do on incarnation. But incarnation means to become flesh, to enter into where people are, to come as one light, to be present in that moment in kind of solidarity with others, right? Does that make sense? And too often in the church we have focused on the miracle of resurrection and not focused too much on the power and miracle of incarnation. Amen? But what a powerful thing it is, what an amazing thing it is that God loved us so much that he sent his son in our midst, in fact, if you read to in John chapter 1, which I know you'll do today when you get home, John chapter 1 talks about this whole concept that the light existed before creation, or the word logos, I know you know that in Greek, and in fact, Christ came and dwelt among us. God loved us so much, that part of the Trinity, to live in our very midst. I think a lot about incarnation, and for me, it's an important part of my faith, that God, who is so powerful, who created the universe, who has all kinds of amazing attributes, loved me, loved you so much that he came among us as a baby, right? To experience grief, pain, joy, suffering, junior high. You know what I'm saying? All of that, right? That's the kind of God who loves us so much. When I was a junior high and early high school kid in our church, we had Pastor Don for about five years, and our family adored him. He was a great pastor. He and his wife were fun. He loved sports. He loved skiing. He loved all kinds of stuff. And in the past, our pastors had been great, but, you know, they just hadn't really connected with the youth. But Pastor Don was committed to go almost on every youth trip. Now, our church was really pretty large, so for him to take the time to come on the trips with us was really helpful. I remember one ski trip in particular. Pastor Don came on that trip, and he spoke to all of us. He led some of the devotions, but not all of them, but he was an amazing skier, and we were in awe. And he taught some of us to ski, and he helped us with our lessons, and then that night he helped to make spaghetti. Now, Pastor Don was no greater than the rest of us, amen? But there was something powerful and, and heartwarming and life-changing that he cared about us so much that he would just do the ordinary things 
in our midst to show his care for us. That's a minuscule example of how incarnation impacts us. But God loved us so much that he came among us as a child. I want to read from Isaiah in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture, a text that's often read at Christmas Eve and will be this year, but is a wonderful text for us today. It comes from Isaiah, the prophet, and it's really reflective of those who've just experienced the power of the Assyrian Empire. It is reflective of the destruction that has come and those who've been taken into exile. And so people, in, as they're hearing these words from Isaiah, are hopeless people. They've been through a lot. It seems like it's never going to end. They've got great challenges. There's lots of division. It's been a very, very hard time. Sound familiar? Hear these words. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing the plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son has been given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a beautiful passage. Far hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. But we're, we're a sign that, that of restoration. In fact, there's some belief that it's speaking somewhat about uh, a child being born who will ultimately be the king. Historically, some people believe this might have been a a, a passage written for the coronation or at least the birth of King Hezekiah in 700s B.C. But whatever the case, this text became important for the church as it kind of foretold the coming of Jesus and foretold the coming of the Messiah and foretold the coming of the King. Now, I want to talk about those two words. We use them a lot, but do we really know what they mean? Sometimes we talk about Jesus as king, right? And in this passage, it's clear that a king has been born. Kings are interesting. We don't really uh, understand kingship and royal families in the U.S., though we're mesmerized by them elsewhere, especially the British royal family. I don't really know what our thing is, right? Amen? But we're, we're fascinated by them. But whatever the case may be, Maybe presidents or uh, political leaders might fall in this category, but it's still quite different, right? Kings were chosen uh, usually through a line of royalty, and in this case, it's the the royalty of the line of King David, right? Now, you remember David, right? There had been one king before him, and you'll remember Samuel had anointed him. His name was Saul. Things didn't go well for him. Uh, he, He really suffered from a lot of things, made some really bad decisions, and God decided that Saul wasn't going to work as the king. And so Saul from the tribe of Benjamin is released, as you may remember, in some pretty hard situations, and David is chosen. Now you remember, David doesn't make sense. Do you remember this? 
David has a bunch of brothers, and he has a huge family. And when Samuel goes to Jesse's house, that's the father, he says, I'm here to find the king for Israel. And I'm sure Jesse thought, what are you doing? These kids are terrible kids. What are you thinking, right? And so he goes to, from all of them, every one of those kids, is it me? Is it me? It's kind of like Cinderella and the glass slipper, right? And finally, they go through all those boys, and not one of them is the king. And you'll remember, he says to Jesse, is there one other? And he said, well, our youngest, he's kind, of, he's kind of a problem maybe, you know, and he's not here. He's out taking care of the sheep, and it can't be him. But as soon as Samuel sees him, God says to him, anoint him, and he does. The Davidic line became the most important identity for the people of Israel, remember? And so this anointing is important to realize as well. Anointing means to pour oil, right? To set apart. To pour, and it often meant the pouring of a flask or horn of oil over a person to uh, anoint them for the work of being a king or a queen or a leader, right? Now, let's talk about that oil. Exodus chapter 30, if you go there, you'll read about this oil. Uh, the oil uh, is first created to anoint the priests, the Levites, and all of the instruments and furniture in the sanctuary. So there would be oil here and oil there. And it wasn't just like oil from your car, amen, thank God, right? It was olive oil with a bunch of spices and cinnamon, and it was, had a special recipe, and that oil was used for the anointing of priests and the anointing of those special instruments of worship. There was another oil that has a, a separate situation that's for the anointing of kings. And it was often poured over their head as a sign of God's choosing them to be the next king and leader. And that's what happened to David. Now David had his problems, and we'll pass those over today. But David is often seen as the most wonderful and effective and God-centered king of all of Israel. He did have a lot of problems. You can read about those in Samuel and Kings, right? Okay. But the Davidic line became so important that it points toward Jesus. Now let's talk about the word anointed. The word anointed can also mean, in a particular form, Messiah or Mashiach. And Messiah is the anointed one. It's the chosen one. And so when we talk about a Messiah, in, in, as far as the folks of the Davidic line, they kept looking for a Messiah who would deliver them first from the Assyrians, then from the Babylonians, then from, and, and so on and so on, right? And even today, David, King David is mentioned many, many times. He's the second most mentioned person in the Bible after Jesus, good, you're good. You're gonna, you ought to do Jeopardy. You're doing well, right? Okay. So, Jesus is the Messiah for us, and Jesus is the anointed one. And it's interesting how Jesus was anointed. Do you remember? There was no Samuel to pour a flask over his head. Certainly King Herod, who was the kind of puppet king of the Romans, had no desire for Jesus. Remember when he was born, he tried to have him killed. Remember that? Jesus was anointed by three women, right? There was perfume poured on feet and head. Women who had no standing. Jesus is the anointed one in a different way. Luke, Matthew, all of them indicate that this Messiah, this anointed, will be far different. Amen? Let's talk about king. 
kings are crowned, right? They get a, a crown. They're, uh, they're crowned, and, 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 and they have this amazing ceremony of being uh, chosen, right? And we've seen some of those coronation events, right, in our life, or we read about them. But Jesus' coronation is far different than the Romans' coronation of Herod or kings throughout the centuries or even David himself. Jesus is crowned by Roman soldiers who have whipped him and stripped him. And they don't use a golden crown, but a crown of thorns, right? It says a lot to us about what it means for Jesus to be Messiah and to be king. It says a lot to us about how Jesus came into the world. And that's our second passage today as we hear these words, which you already heard read so beautifully by Jim. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, you would think it would be Jerusalem or Rome or, you know, Chicago. But this is kind of like... Um, Lombard, you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, this is kind of an out-of-the-way town with no real status. Sorry for the Lombardians in the room. So an angel sent to Nazareth, this backwater town, to a virgin engaged to a man who was named Joseph of the house of David. Do you see the connection? That's really what I want you to hear. That Davidic line is already connected here. Matthew does it in the very beginning. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. And we'll talk about what that name means next week. Savior, just to get you prepared, right? And you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? So it's interesting, in, in, in other royalty, and, in, and even included in David's son Solomon, I mean, there's all this kind of expected royal birth, you know, right, and celebrations and announcements. But the Messiah, the chosen one, Jesus, is born in a controversial story, right? Born to a young girl who's betrothed or engaged, which was a legal agreement, to Joseph, who we later learn is a carpenter, or Norm, actually the word, you're going to love this, is translated handyman and carpenter, right? Uh, but anyway, Joseph, Joseph is not someone of great wealth. Mary is a girl who's in trouble. I mean, it's a, it's a tough story. And yet, it's in this story that the king and the Messiah comes. So as we journey in these next weeks in Advent, I want us to hear about these amazing words of Messiah and King. And then we're going to talk about Savior, and we're going to talk about Prince of Peace, and what does it mean to be the Wonderful Counselor, all these words. In fact, it's a great gift to you. On December 19th, we'll be singing from, uh, the choir will be singing Messiah, and what a gift to us, because a lot of that imagery comes to play in all of the music to remind us of what these many names of Jesus incarnated in our midst, because God loved us so much that he came among us. And then I don't want to miss that second coming piece, right? 
And I think maybe this is one we avoid. It's easier for us to talk about a baby in a nativity scene and sing carols, and, you know, that's easy for us. But what does it mean for a Savior to come who will forever change the world, whose kingdom stands in opposition to everything the world says is important, right? Wealth and prestige and power and money spent to be in power, all of those things are in total, total opposition to who this child is, to who this king is, to who this Messiah is. Hear these words from Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems and crowns. He has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It reminds us that this child is also a Savior who comes and brings justice and peace and brings his way of life to our world. And when it seems impossible for us to live with hope, we read these hopeful words of revelation and remember that again and again, even in the worst of times, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords comes. There's another ancient word that means God is with us. That word is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, come. Come now in this Advent and change our lives. Come, Emmanuel, and change our world.